and welcome to the Surf's Up on Beach Boys Podcast Safari. I'm Mark Dillon, and I'm here today with my partner, Phil Migliorati, host of the Pray for Surf podcast. Hello, Phil. Hello, Mark. Good to be with you again. Looking forward to this conversation. Well, we have a very special guest today, and that is Adam Marsland. Adam uh, was founder of a mid-90s L.A. pop punk band called Cockeyed Ghost, later went on to form Adam Marsland's Chaos Band, which also includes Evie Sands, a legend in her own right, who recorded the original versions of Angel of the Morning and I Can't Let Go back in the 1960s, Alan Boyd, who's in charge of the Beach Boys archive and co-produces the archival releases with Mark Lynette, and Teresa Cowles, a bassist who portrayed Carol Kay in the movie Love and Mercy. And uh, they, they were so good and made such a buzz that even Al Jardine joined them at, uh, at a few shows. In 2006, the Chaos Band released uh, the live album Long Promised Road, Songs of Dennis and Carl Wilson, which is a must-have for Beach Boys fans. And when I wrote my book, 50 Sides of the Beach Boys, Adam was one of the 50 people I interviewed, and he spoke about the Carl song, Long Promise Road. Adam says he got into Beach Boys music in the 1970s via the lesser-known songs of Carl and Dennis, whereas most people would have been drawn in by the hit songs written and produced by Brian. So that makes him the perfect guest for this episode's theme, which is Best Beach Boys Songs Not Written or Produced by Brian Wilson. Without further ado, welcome Adam Marsland. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Thank you, Phil. How are you doing today, Adam? Well, it's a, it's a sad day. Uh, we're recording this right after we lost uh, Adam Schlesinger, who's a, a, a guy I really idolized. And uh, so it's good to be able to talk about some enduring music and how music uh, can comfort us all. Yeah, I, I share your sorrow. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Fountains of Wayne. I was uh, very shocked and saddened to hear about uh, about Adam's passing. So we'll uh, we'll dedicate this episode to him. Um, and you're in Los Angeles right now in self isolation, as as <laughs> as we all are. Yeah. Uh, but you've been spending most of the past few years in Asia, and you've been documenting your thoughts and travels in the web series Adam Walks Around, and people can find that on YouTube. Correct. Yes, and I wish they would. <laughs> I, I was just watching it uh, today, and uh, it's a very unvarnished look at uh, the places that you visit in Cambodia, Malaysia, Indonesia, and, and, and you share a lot of your inner thoughts as well. It's a very uh, very unique take on, uh, on a web series. Thanks, man. Well, I, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I've really been trying to do so, almost like the anti-travel uh, vlog where when you go on YouTube and you watch a travel show, a lot of times it's like, Hey, look at me. I'm having this amazing life. And, and the people and the places are just sort of the backdrop to that one person's adventure. And I kind of wanted to flip that around and, and be sort of being the idiot walking around sort of the guest star in their culture rather than culture being the guest star in my life. And, and, uh, I'm pretty proud of it. Uh, so well, none of us can do much traveling right now. So no. if, people, if people have that wanderlust, remotely through your great web series, yeah, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to continue it. It's just not quite clear when I'm going to be able to get back to Asia, but uh, life is uncertain for all of us right now. So, well, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, Long Promised Road, songs of Dennis and Carl Wilson. I, I can't say enough about how great this CD is. I mean, you've got a few well, excellent. You. Yeah, you've got a few excellent originals in there. I mean, you know, you get your moment. Evie gets her moment. Alan Boyd gets his moment, you know, doing their own songs. Uh, but the focus is on songs by Dennis and Carl, and, and mm -hmm. that's a very, very interesting take. Uh, and if I recall correctly, 
the the first Beach Boys album that you got was was Surfs Up, right? Did, so is this what sort of started you into into you know hooking into like what Carl was doing and, and later exploring? Yeah, you know, it, my way of getting into the Beach Boys was a little peculiar because uh, I was born in the mid '60s, so uh, I'm a Gen X guy, and so I was you know 12 or 13 in the late '70s, and there was still very much at that time a stigma around the band and the whole striped shirt deal it wasn't cool you know and uh, I, at that time uh, because of where i grew up uh, a lot of my music knowledge was acquired by reading uh, so i would read about bands and, and and then i would go investigate them there would be a a library uh near where i lived where i could go check the records out and listen to them. So I remember I got, I think it was the Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll. That was a reference book at that time. And there was a chart discography of the Beach Boys in there. And I saw all of these singles that I'd never heard or heard of with these very peculiar sounding, you know, names, you know, and I'm like, what is this stuff? And I, I fixated on Sail on Sailor, which I had never heard at that time. I was a kind of an obsessive little kid. <laughs> yes. And I remember I, I, I wanted to hear this song so bad. I was so intrigued by this title. And I listened on the radio for probably a couple of weeks, just flipping the dial, flipping the dial. And finally, I heard the fade out. I just flipped <laughs> over and was like, Sail on Sailor. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is – And it was funny because it lived up to my, like, self-induced hype of what this song must sound like. Right. Um, but at that time, Holland was still a full price uh, album and I was probably 12 years old. Surf's Up, however, was selling for $1.99 or $2.99. So uh, I bought that record. And, uh, that, and then after that, I think it was Light Album and then Pacific Ocean Blue. Uh, and I would just started filling it in from the seventies. And I, I got into Brian's stuff later because, and, and this is funny because I've talked to other people who are sort of of the seventies, um, Carl and Dennis's, uh, material doesn't carry some of that sort of not so cool stigma, right. Uh, that the beach boys had in the seventies and eighties. I mean, it's not that way now, but at that time, it was it was just a little too hey, 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 you know, but Dennis and Carl had a little bit of a tougher vibe. They were a little more hooked into the AOR uh, ethos at the time, and they just sounded a little more current. And right. so, for someone of my you know of my generation and tastes, it was a better entry point to the band for me. I really really liked "Surfs Up," the song "Surfs Up," and so that was the first. Brian song that I really got into and then we got hooked into the smile thing and the thing is because I was such an avid reader uh, I did have some context for this stuff I bought David Leaf's book um, which I just sold to Mark Moore by the way the whole thing was falling apart <laughs> I, I saw a, I saw a picture of that you, you must yeah. have read that book a lot I did I did but the thing is I knew the whole story and so with Brian's stuff, because I had David Leaf to sort of explain to me why it was really cool and I shouldn't be put off by the whole striped shirt thing, um, I, I 
I know Surf's Up was my entry point. It took a while to get the 60s records, but I, it was a process. It, they were a little hard to find at that time. I remember Sunflower was particularly difficult to acquire, uh, as was Carl and the Passions, those two albums. And of the 60s records, you, you could get them on those twofers. Yes. Uh, yeah, so that's what I got. And, uh, and uh, I remember getting Pet Sounds with Carl and the Passions and not really liking Pet Sounds that much at that time i liked smile I, I i got the i was able to get a bootleg of that and i did like that music uh but the again the late 60s stuff i really liked wild honey i really liked 2020 um it but i think for someone with my cultural biases uh and also you know i think for anybody you know to appreciate something like beach boys love you which I did not like at that time. I thought it was just crap. Um, you really, you really have to just sort of have this what they call in the film suspension of disbelief. You're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna put all this stuff over here to the side that's telling us this is unlistenable. Yeah, you know, something like a Hey Little Tomboy, which is, you which is you know pretty tough going lyrically, right? Uh, to be able to sit down and go, or even a song like Pitter Patter which is kind of dopey, but it's a lovely track and it's a, it's a lovely melody. Uh, but you have to get past the pitter-patter, pitter-patter of the rain. You got to be able to tell yourself um, that that's cool. Now, I have to say, I didn't really get an affinity for the early stuff until I started playing it. Um, fairly late in the game, after the Carl and Dennis stuff, I started doing some gigs with some Beach Boys tribute bands. And as you said, a, a couple of gigs with Al and, uh, and uh, doing the, so once you actually have to execute that material, you, you get a much greater uh, appreciation for the nuts and bolts of it. Like mm -hmm. I get around is up there with any prog rock song in terms of the difficulty of execution of that tune always remember uh, whenever I would play with a Beach Boys tribute band I would just sort of get my breath around uh, this, the, the first chorus or is it the second chorus and then you're like okay I finally got a handle on this too. It's like, oh here's that goddamn key change and, <laughs> and then you're going up a step like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. let it stop and then you know it's, it's just like this marathon you mentioned playing with Al and some of the other guys any quick comments just what they're like or uh you know um well i've only had i've only interacted extensively with dave and al i've had some interesting uh run-ins with brian but I, I can't say i know him um uh dave i can say he's just one of my very favorite people i would consider him a friend uh and i just uh and i i think we work together really well um but uh I, I, when he first came in to work with me uh he was just really easy to work with and and i got the feeling that he worked with a lot of people that didn't really take him as seriously as they probably should have and uh if you if you if you give him space to do his thing and and in, in, in give him the time and then 
go back and pick through and, and get the, the moments of genius, and he has many. Uh, he, he can do some brilliant work. Uh, I mean, I think he could, if focused properly, he could probably do his own record that would be as, as good as anybody's or better. Al, um, I found Al to be a, a very gracious guy, very friendly, um, a little intense about music matters. Uh, I remember that we, we did, uh, we did heroes and villains and we had, uh, the whole thing worked out, you know, like the, with the, the, the acapella thing and the beach boys uh, arrangement. And he came in at sound check and just rearranged all our parts. <laughs> and we were just freaking out like, ah, <laughs> but it worked out fine. You know? So where can people buy the uh, Long Promise Road songs of Dennis and Carl Wilson CD? And and I just want to add an, just another one, one of the special about that CD is that you have a couple of unreleased, at that time, unreleased Dennis songs. One of them yeah. being Carry, Carry Me Home, which is a harrowing song uh, about a dying U.S. soldier in Vietnam. And, and the ballad, Wouldn't It Be Nice to Live Again, which was cut off the Surf's Up album. Uh, so to most fans, that was the first time they ever heard that one. And uh, it was subsequent, subsequently released on the 2013 Made in California box set. But uh, just a couple of the very cool things on that CD. So how could somebody get their hands on that? Well, as it happens... Um... Uh, we just yesterday started uh, doing a kind of a clearinghouse sale uh, here because uh, I'm hopeful to be able to move back to Asia and I have to uh, reduce my storage footprint here. So uh, Long Promise Road is currently available on Amazon for $30. However, uh, here at uh, Karma Frog, which is my record label, uh, we have it for sale uh, for $20. Plus, uh, if you're interested in investigating, I'm sorry, if you're interested in investigating my own work, uh, my uh, own music, which has a lot of Beach Boys influence to it, although it's not like I'm trying to imitate them, but there's an element of that in it, or some of the work that I've produced for other artists, uh, you can pick up that Long Promised Road album and for as little as one to two dollars. Uh, pick up extra CDs. And the way to do that is you can go to my record company website, which is karmafrog, K-A-R-M-A-F-R-O-G dot com slash selloff, S-E-L-L-O-F-F dot H-T-M-L. And uh, you'll be able to get both the Long Promised Road and many more CDs at a buck or two a pop for the same shipping rate. So you can get that album and also check out some uh, cool original music as well for next to nothing. That's fantastic. Yeah. So on to today's theme, which is best Beach Boy songs not written and produced by Brian Wilson. As every fan should know, pop genius Brian wrote and produced everything that made the Beach Boys successful in their early days, everything you would find on their Endless Summer Greatest Hits package, Pet sounds, the unreleased smile stuff, but but starting with the smile replacement album, Smiley Smile, that record was credited as produced by the Beach Boys. And starting with the next album, Wild Honey, we start to get songs written by other band members. So we've asked Adam to compile an album's worth of the best tracks that Brian did not have a hand in writing or producing. So Adam, start us off. What do you have? 
Okay, well, I have to do a little disclaimer first so people don't have the pitchforks out. Um, <laughs> I I chose this list based on the songs that I still love to listen to and I'm most excited to talk about. If I was making an objectively these are the best songs list, I would probably make a few different uh, choices. Number 12 is Keeping the Summer Alive. Carl Wilson, uh, Randy Bachman co-write. Um, I remember hearing this on the radio in 1980 and just going, whoa, what is this? It just it just was really, really cool. This is one of these weird songs like uh, Disco, Here Comes the Night, that I'll defend to the death, even if, <laughs> even if people, other people don't like them. Um, but it was it's just such an interesting idea to me. The, the Eagles took so much from the Beach Boys, as well as a lot of other bands. And now the Beach Boys are doing the Eagles. And, but you've got Carl Wilson instead of Glenn Frey or Don Henley singing. And you have this sort of update on the, on the idea. And the, the cool thing about that track is it's got, it's got such a tough... Um, the rhythm section is, is so interesting. And if you watch the band do this on the Friday's broadcast in 1980, when they were just stripped down to like uh, uh, three or four sidemen, you, you watch Brian playing this song. He is playing it exactly right. And and he is and it's not his song, but you can see he is so into playing the keyboard part. It's like someone like lit a fire under him. It's like, oh, this is really interesting. And I get why because it's, first of all, that's a difficult part to play. Da 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 da. so it's to me, it's one of the few Beach Boys tunes where you've got a really kind of a funky backbeat. And, and kind of a tough top end. I mean, it could have rocked a little more than it did, but to me, the track really, really works quite well. Well, you know, I hadn't given that uh, song or album much thought until I heard your CD, and then I'm like, wow, they actually make that song sound good. So it, it got me to to revisit. And you're right, I, I don't think the uh, album version is as punchy as it could be, but the the version they do. Uh, on the Nebworth live CD is fantastic. I think that achieves the kind of energy that the song needed. Yeah. Okay, I guess we should keep this moving. So number 11 uh, is It's a Beautiful Day. Uh, oh, I think. Whoa, yes. Yeah. Uh, now, this, is, um, this was a single that was released between the Light Album and Keeping the Summer Alive. And to me, in the late 70s, you have this thing where you got Carl and Dennis uh, trying to pull the band into what's going on at the time. And you got Al and Mike kind of trying to pull the band back into the 60s. This is the one song where I feel like it all comes together. It's very much an Al and Mike creation. It's got that retro thing going on. But the, the lyrics, I think partly because of the context of the film that was written for, which was called Americathon. So there's a little bit of deep irony to Americathon. First of all, the big joke was it was 1996 and ha ha ha, the Beach Boys are still together and still making records, which of course <laughs> they, they were, but in 1979, that was a big joke. Americathon was this movie that was sort of set in this dystopian future. And so there was a little bit of a layer of irony to the lyrics of the, the song when the whole fun and sun thing. So there was a, a little bit more uh, of, uh, of meta to the song. And the track is uh, very, 
very much more like a light album track and not like an MIU track. So it, it had that fun in the sun feel to it, but it was a little punchier. Uh, it was a little edgier. It wasn't over orchestrated. It's just a really cool single. And it's too bad it didn't hit because I think that's the one song where Al and Mike were doing their Al and Mike thing, but yet it had a little bit of that light album, a little bit more of its time thing. It was a really good updating of the band sound, I think. Number 10 uh, is Endless Harmony. Um, That's a good choice. Yeah, I want to I give Bruce some love. And the thing about this song, and I didn't pick Disney Girls, uh, another sort of obvious one that, that, you know, if I was writing for a magazine or something, I probably would have given it the nod. Uh, but a lot of the songs that I chose have a lot of atmosphere to them. And... Uh, this is a wonderful vocal performance. Now you have to go along with Bruce's sort of schmaltzy approach to things. Um, so you have to be able to rather like what I was saying about Brian's stuff earlier, you have to sort of be able to accept this is the stylistic choice that he made. Right. But you have this first section, which is just the, the electric piano and Bruce's voice. And he just comes in, ocean lovers who like to harmonize and it's so bleak it's beautiful but there's just a, a sort of almost mystic mystical quality to it that i think was deliberate and then you get to the second part of it and then all of a sudden it turns into this uh sort of again this sort of post 70s throwback version of the beach boy sound almost like in the 1970s there are all these bands that were updating that sound. And it, it's got that same sort of 70s retro Beach Boy sound to it. And Carl comes in sort of singing about himself. And um, and there's even a little bit of irony there. Like, um, and we sang God bless America. It's a land where we toured. Um, she takes great care of us. That's, there's a little bit of a slight amount of cynicism there, which is, which is kind of cool. And then you go, and then that gorgeous falsetto comes in. And that's one of the most chilling moments in the Beach Boys whole discography. I think that's Bruce singing there, but it, it, it just, the way it just comes right down that one voice, and it's so eerie. And then it comes down to that, like, resolves to the major chord there. Um there's a lot going on in that song, and I think people don't appreciate it as much because of that sort of schmaltzy part of it. But um, I, I think it's a wonderful achievement. And also, if I'm not mistaken, it is the last song that the entire band tracked. Mm. Like, wow. I believe, uh, I mean, I have to check with Craig Slowinski about this, but uh, I believe that all of, the, all of the guys played on it. Wow. Even Dennis. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's another song, like that whole album, like I kind of dismissed very quickly. And and I think it's it's all about context. Like if, if it's somebody like you who covers it, then that makes you sort of look at it again. And um, Alan Boyd put that on the uh, Endless Harmony uh, documentary soundtrack CD, I think the last song. And that made me look at it again. And, and, and yeah. this, I, I do find the whole thing about, God, you know, 
she takes great care of us. I thought that was like a little cringy, but uh, there, as you say, like some of the harmonies on that are are, are some of the best. And uh, I think that's a song that if people have not rediscovered it, they should uh, definitely give it another listen. Yeah. You know, I, I, I agree with you uh, with Bruce's Schmaltz stuff. I wonder if the difference in this song that he wrote, produced, sang, is that it, it incorporates other Beach Boys and more harmonies, whereas, as I think of some of his other solos, ah, yeah, yeah. enjoyable songs, but they really could have been, you know, on the going public, so to speak, his solo album, Bruce, yeah. a good song, or Barry Manilow doing I Write the Songs, whereas this is Bruce maybe having the lead, most of it, but uh, it's a Beach Boys sound. Yeah, I, I, I just think it's a, a lovely record. Um, thank you. Uh, number nine is a little less controversial. It's Angel Come Home. Right. Uh, I don't know how much we need to say about this, uh, but it, what a great moment and what a, a, um, a canny move by Carl having Dennis sing it. Um, and I, I'm gonna, I heard, I, I yeah, heard, sorry right, to interrupt. Right. I heard that uh, Bruce, uh, so, okay, I think this song, I mean, this, this requires more research, but I think that song had been kicking around since about 1976. Yes, and, you're right. And, and then, so Bruce produced that album, L.A. album, and and my understanding is it was Bruce's idea to have Dennis sing the song. So it, it's a great choice for our list because you've got Bruce producing, like working on a track that had existed to some extent, you know, a Carl composition with uh, Jeffrey Cushing Murray, who we're going to have on our show soon, and uh, Dennis singing. So it's a, it's a great combo of, of Beach Boys working outside of Brian. And I'll come right out and say um, Light Album is one of my very, very favorite Beach Boys records. Uh, I'm, it's considerably helped by the fact that I love the disco tune and it doesn't bother me in the slightest. <laughs> uh, but I think that prevents people from really seeing what's there. It's got, it's, people are starting to catch on that that's really a good record. But I remember I was flying that flag alone for a long, long time. <laughs> Right, but that—that's yeah. So, uh, but Angel Come Home, uh, wonderfully bleak lyric, and it's one of the. If you think about it, like Carl is such a great singer, but if if he had sung that song, I don't think you'd buy the lyric. You know, not as much. It, even though Dennis wasn't as good a singer as he was, but he brought the gravitas. Uh, and and I almost think that because I believe Carl was talking about his divorce uh, at that time. It, it might not have been something that he, he wanted to access, you know, mm. uh, he was coming out of a real dark time in his life. He'd had the divorce. He'd had the heroin addiction. He was just starting to get cleaned up. Um, might've even been a mental health decision. I mean, I realize you're, I think you're right. It was Bruce's idea, but Carl certainly didn't object, you know? Um, so. And of course, D Dennis could draw on his own divorce. Oh, divorces. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> um, number eight, uh, another uncontroversial choice, The Traitor. Um, loved this one from the first time I ever heard it. Uh, and again, with, with a lot of the songs I've chosen from Carl and Dennis, uh, I've, I've given the edge to songs with a lot of atmosphere. And they were both very, very good at, well, let me take a quick step back. One of the reasons Smile is so interesting to listen to is the, um, the overall production vibe, the use of reverb, the use of 
sort of minimalist instrumental touches. Like Pet Sounds was very, here's a ton of instruments coming at you, right? And we're going to combine this and this and this. It's just this wall of sound. Smile's very stripped back. Right. Uh, you've got a lot of the same players, but you, you, there, there's that sort of everything's coming apart kind of feel to it. And it, if it's uh, similar in my mind to Big Star's Third, which is another record I really, really love. Yes. But a lot of what makes that stuff work is the sonic palette of the recording, the, the, how the, the, the resonance of the instruments and, and the sound of the reverb. So I think with Carl and Dennis coming of age as producers and songwriters around that time, and maybe trying to feel for a way they could carry on the band's sound in ways they were comfortable with. Because I don't think Carl and Dennis, if left to their own devices, would have written what we would call, quote, Beach Boys music, unquote. Um, I think they had, Brian handed them the football, as it were, and they were like, well, how can we do this? And so a lot of my favorite Carl and Dennis tunes have that same sense of atmosphere uh, filtered through their personality. So getting it back to the trader, um, that's one of uh, Carl's tunes. It's built around the world of Sir Piano and it anticipates a sound that Supertramp would have a lot of success with that sort of eighth note uh, piano feel, or is it eighth note? I think da, trader, da, da, maybe it's quarter notes and trader. Um, but it, the sound of a Wurlitzer piano with a little bit of reverb, those vocals by Carl and Marilyn kind of coming in in the ether there, it just creates this very mystical quality. And a very quick uh, personal story about that, when we covered this song for uh, the Long Promised Road album, this was the hardest song to do. Wow. And um, Evie had said that her favorite Beach Boys album was... Uh, Holland and Evie of all of us probably had the least affinity for the, the Beach Boys music. In fact, probably everybody, including Teresa in the band, uh, became uh, fluent in the Beach Boys vocabulary through me because uh, I was the one that was sort of <laughs> being the Darian in that situation, right? Um, so uh, we gave uh, the trader to Evie as sort of like a you know, okay, you love Holland, so you, you can do this tune. Well, that was, <laughs> unfortunately, the song was way too low for Evie, and it drove her crazy trying to sing it. She it, she really hated singing it <laughs> because it was so low for her. And for years later, any time that, we, uh, we had, that Evie had to sing a part that she thought was too low for her range, we would always reference Trader and forcing her to sing it. So sorry, Evie, if you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I have to she say, did a great job, but she didn't. It was a tough one for her. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Probably of, of any song in the Beach Boys canon, the one that I I didn't like at first, but really grew on me is this one. I mean, I, I did not. I'm not a huge fan of Holland, like some people are. Like I think Surf's yeah. Up is a much better album than Holland mm -hmm, is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I found I, the reason is I found Holland kind of a boring album. Like some of these songs are really long. Like you know, you yeah. Got three-part California California saga thing. Trader is very long and it's very low key. And, yeah. but I don't know, like something about it, like the, the intelligence of the lyric and, and, and the mood of it, as you say, 
eventually caught up with me and 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 now i i i'm i'm in awe of that song i think it's fantastic and and i just wanted to also add a quote here from um tom petty many people might know that tom petty is, is a big fan of the holland album and in reference to carl's vocals he says the Traitor may be the best piece of work ever by a man who did many, many great vocals. The song is the centerpiece to Holland, and all these years later still leaves me with my mouth hung open when I hear it. Yeah, and, and it's funny because I remember one of the first uh, uh, biographies that came out. I think it was Beach Boys and Words and Pictures. Um, it was, came out in 74, 75. Uh, the writer called Carl out and said, if the song succeeds despite a flat nasal vocal parentheses, Carl never having been a standout solo singer, uh, wow. which, will, which will give you a sense of, you know, where people were at in the mid seventies with that. Okay. Moving on. Um, number seven, uh, be with me on 2020. Love it. That one really hits me because again, it's got this amazing sonic world to it. Uh, I particularly love the sound of the snare drum. Boom, 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 boom. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it has a lot of meat to it. There's a lot of reverb on it, but it still cuts. You've got those eerie, eerie um, string sounds. Um, it gets genuinely disturbing towards the end. Yeah. Um, but yet the melody is very, very sweet. So the song is a lot going for it. It's got it's got this wonderful sonic world. It's it takes you through a, a bunch of different moods, sort of Dennis's, you know, various stages of I don't should we say arousal? Probably not. Very emotional journey, you know. Um, and it it to, to me it just it, it's hit me harder than any of Dennis's tunes from around that time. I think it's a great song, and and to me, it's it's like his sort of version of Pet Sounds. Like he's dealing with the the strings and the horns, like Brian yeah. would, but but adding his own kind of, as you say, there's an eeriness uh, to the whole track that 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 I guess Brian was doing with Smile. I guess it, it could almost do yeah. that as well. I pulled out a quote. I should have had the reference. I don't have it with it, but just the I'll just pull out some phrases re regarding "Be with Me." Opulent arrangement, tender vocal, remarkable talent staggering backing track to the song yeah number six is where i belong from beach boys 1985 right wow See, and that's I, another I'll... one that's another one that i grew to love through you because you cover it and i'm like i, I you know i didn't listen very much to the 1985 album and then you did the song i'm like hey this is a really good song so that made me revisit and then you know having interviewed uh, steve levine for for my album uh, for my album having interviewed steve levine for my book and learning more about the making of that album was very interesting uh yeah and i i can't take full credit because i didn't really care for the song when i first heard it and i think it was andrew doe's book that pointed me in that direction i actually really liked maybe i don't know that was my favorite song from beach boys 85 because again i don't have a big problem with the Beach Boys updating their sound as long as they take it in a direction that intrigues me. Um, but uh, where I belong, you know, and I re-listened to it last night. It's a it's a stunning recording, and in one of the things that is great about it is that album really suffers from its production. I think we can all agree on that. No disrespect to Steve Levine. Um, it's just so much of its time, you know, occasionally it works like get you back, you know, that sort of huge snare sound they got, which is very 
eighties, but also very dentist, you know, that was kind of cool, you know? Um, but where I belong and this gets us back to the whole thing about atmosphere, the, the synthesizers on that track, it's almost like an Enya song. Yes. You, you have a vision of sort of being in the Arctic somewhere. Um, sonically, you know, it, like it, it, there's this, this sort of cold, icy sound to it. Um, that at first is a little off-putting, but it it makes the harmonies and the 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 sort of uh, love-related lyric take on a majesty. That you know, if if it had, if it had been done in a different way, like maybe no disrespect to Bruce, but done the way that Endless Harmony was done, uh, it would have just you know fallen through the trap door in the floor but there's it's just so elegant so majestic there's so much dignity to the vocal performance of the band uh, who i believe are all on the track i can hear brian in the in the midsection um i just think it's a, a stunning recording yes number four uh long promised road um probably the most difficult song i've ever had to learn as a musician uh, in fact, and I think I talked about this in, in your book, I was completely baffled by what the hell he was playing on the keyboard until I started focusing on the shapes of the chords. And I realized what, what he was doing was uh, making chord choices based on where his fingers were on the keyboard rather than where they would logically go in, in terms of chord theory. Um, so all of those chords are... Uh, sort of white white keyed chords that are in very close intervals to each, each other, and he's kind of moving his one finger around to change it around. And uh, I have another story about this one um, that relates to that. Uh, when we did the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when we did the uh, Carl Wilson Foundation show back in 2008, and my band was the backup band for David and Al and uh, Carney and uh, Wendy, the Honeys, etc. So Brian was on the bill, and uh, I had assumed that during our set, he would be out in his trailer, right? So at that show, Brian had this enormous striped shirt, blue and white stripes. So you could always see where Brian was because this big guy with this shirt, right? So we got up on stage and I'm the music director. I'm right up front so I can see everybody, you know, cue them. And <clears throat> the first song we did was Long Promised Road. So I look out in the audience and it's completely dark, except I can see one thing, hmm. Brian's shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing I could see. And, and I, I started to freak out. Um, because right. I'm sitting there thinking it's like I'm playing and that song's all me, you know, because I'm playing a ding and ding. If I'm if I'm not on it, thing goes south. So I'm playing it and I'm starting to think in my head, Adam, that's Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson is watching you play. You are the focal point of this moment. He's out there. He's watching you. And if you screw up this song, if you forget something or do something wrong, you, you, everything on the stage is going to fall apart. And Brian's right out there. That striped shirt is out there. And this is going through my head. 
So we get to the bridge, which is really hard to keep straight because again, there are all these chords that are almost the same uh, and, and, and roots that don't really make any sense against them. And I completely forgot the song, completely. All I could remember was they were all white keys. So I just start pawing, pawing the keys, the white key. Just start playing random stuff, like wow. kind of like, well, it's, it's something here. And the and the band starts looking around, like you know, like you do when someone's cut a fart and you don't know who did it. Like they <laughs> couldn't tell what was, they couldn't tell where it was coming from, but they knew something was amiss, you know. And this went on for I don't know a year in my mind, but probably it was only about ten or fifteen seconds. And then I, and then another voice came in and said. Adam, you're a pro. You know the song. Cut the crap and play it. And then everything came back, and we had a great gig. <laughs> but <laughs> for about ten or fifteen seconds, I was just so unnerved. But you know, the one thing in the audience is like, it's Brian Wilson, and he's watching your band, wow. and it's like it's your dream come true, but it's also your nightmare come true. <laughs> right. Um, number three. All this is that. Right. Um, Carl, Mike, and Al. Again, this is another one where those guys are all on the same page for once. Um, it's interesting how much this song, again, anticipates what Supertramp was going to sound like a couple of years later. Mm. To the point where I, I've never heard of there being a, a big Super Tramp, uh, Beach Boys influence on Supertramp. I think Roger Hodson was a fan, um, but I don't know that for sure. But you have that um, that same kind of eighth note Wurlitzer thing. It's so beautifully produced. There's so much space on the track. I mean, there's you have all these sort of discrete elements that are forming a whole, and uh, it, it, there, it's not a very dense track. But there's so much atmosphere to it, and I love the fact that uh, it's one of Mike's more restrained vocal performances on the little bits that he does. Um, Carl's vocals are exquisite, especially the falsetto at the end. It's just a really nice track. There's a lot of fans out there that think that is the best non-Brian song uh, in the group's catalog. I, it's it's funny because you have all these weird things that usually didn't work, like uh, the, the whole TM lyrical thrust of the early 70s, which was so off-putting for so many of us. Uh, but it, it, in this context, put this way, it's really, really nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful track. Okay, number two is the one I'm probably most excited to talk about because this is possibly uh, my personal favorite Dennis tune, and I never hear anyone talk about this song. Uh, it's Love Surrounds Me from the Light yeah. Album. Interesting. Uh, I love this recording, and I think, again, it's partly because I really do enjoy when there's an attempt made to recontextualize the band's sound in the modern day that works, that doesn't sound forced, who doesn't, you know, doesn't sound um, like, okay, we're trying too hard to get a hit, but just, no, we're going to do something really interesting here. And it's interesting also because you've got Christine McVie on this recording and there's quite a bit of Lindsey Buckingham um, hints of his influence on this track. There are a lot of odd little touches. Like I listened to it with headphones last night so I could talk about it a little more, more coherently. Um, but like 
there's that weird sound like a cricket at the end, like, like what the hell is that? Yes, that's right. You know, and and you and also there's this um, sort of a couple of places. It sounds like someone running a mallet up a glockenspiel. It has a wind chime effect, like ba-ding. Um, the bass and guitar are doing such weird, edgy things. Uh, it, it it's it's just such an interesting track. The Oberheim synth, which you know can sound very cheesy in certain um, contexts, again creates this really interesting and desolate soundscape. And I I, I never get tired of listening to this uh, track. This is another one Jeffrey uh, co-wrote, and I think That's it's right. mostly his song. The the understanding I have from him. Uh, I vaguely remember seeing him post about it uh, was that Dennis sort of had to be coerced into contributing to this song. Hmm. Um, but wh- whoever was responsible, I, I, this is a really, really underrated song in their catalog to me. It's just such an interesting, gripping, um, quirky. It's one of the quirkiest non-Brian songs. And again, and what- it's quirk- quirky in that Lindsey Buckingham way. Wasn't that one originally intended for uh, his solo album, Bamboo? I'm not sure. I've, I've read know. the same thing. I don't know firsthand, but I've read yeah. the same thing. Mm. But, uh, which brings us to number one, which is, I don't think anyone's going to have a problem with. It's Baby Blue. Uh, Boy, you're just, loving your uh, your late 70s, early 80s Beach Boys. Yeah, and all you people that... that you know that wish I did more sixty nine seventy. I I hear you, and this is this is a very subjective list on my part. Um, but uh, Baby Blue, I think, is an undeniable track. Yeah. Uh, the the it's just exquisite recording. The contrast between Dennis and Carl's voices, um, the sort of elegiac way the track unfolds, um, the orchestration is just right and the song's actually quite short um incidentally uh dennis makes reference to brian's falsetto at the end and i for years thought this was brian as well but alan boyd got the uh the tapes out and played it for me and it's actually carl who's doing the brian imitation at the at the fade out um which i didn't believe but it's uh, apparently it was carl but it's just such a, a great recording. So that was co-written uh, with Greg Jacobson and Karen Lamb, Dennis's uh, wife of one time. Yes, and Bobby Lamb's wife of one time. That's true. Yeah. So those those are those are my twelve. Well, that was a great list, and and you surprised us. So that's uh, that that made it very interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess Phil and I can fill in the blanks probably on maybe some more conventional choices. I don't know, Phil. What's, you what's you on would. your list? <clears throat> well, I think if I could only choose one to add, I, by the way, Adam, excellent choices and even better uh, exegeting uh, of why. Uh, Ooh, I got to look that word up. <laughs> excellent. Uh, Thank you. X means, uh, yeah, to, it's a fancy word for explain. Um, I think the one I'd pick would be celebrate the news. I, I was just thinking about that one. one. I almost picked that one. I, I yeah, it's a song. great choice. Um, another quote that I pulled out again, I don't have the, the reference, I apologize, but uh, Celebrate the News is arguably the better song co-written by Dennis 
and his pal Greg Jacobson shifts masterfully through the gears until the uh, uh, the ecstatic mantra, I've got news for you, there ain't no blues. And it beckons in a rampaging end section complete with exuberant gospel-tinged vocals. So um, for back in 69, and he was, I don't know, hadn't been writing songs that long, I think it's a strong, strong song. I don't know what it would have been like if 10 years later he recorded and produced and mixed it, if it would have sounded the same. No, it uh, wouldn't. Yeah, comments, uh, welcome. But uh, anyway, I just think it's a great, it, it's a hidden gem of, of well, it's Dennis's, but it, it was. Uh, I, I That's a great it. choice. We did that on the album, too, yes. uh, because I wanted to call attention to it. Uh, it. But yeah, I, I almost had that on the list. And had I realized Santa Anna Wins was breaking the rules, I probably would have. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the ending in particular is uh, is is one of their greatest uh fade outs and they, and they didn't usually do those sort of overstated kind of fade outs uh, it's about time is another example of uh, of them go going bonkers they didn't really do that bonkers thing very often uh but it's a great track and what's interesting too is i believe that's carl and dennis singing in harmony all the way through the track and i could be wrong you beach boy scholars maybe it's double track dennis but um it's it's definitely a team effort between Carl and Dennis, which is really cool. That's true. Uh, you talk about the fade. It always reminded me of I Want You, She's So Heavy by the Beatles, but more sort of uplifting. Like that song, yeah. the Beatles song kind of drones on in this powerful sound. And, and and the Beach Boy song like gets sort of more exciting as it as as it fades out. And what's interesting is it, it's a it's a real Wrecking Crew production. I was reading up on this. You got James Burton on guitar, Ray Pullman ah. on six string Dano bass, Jimmy Bond on double bass, John Guerin and uh, Donald Frost on drums, Frank Cap, uh, Frank Cap on on timpani. So it's kind of an old style, you know, Brian production in a sense. Did did, did any of the band play on it? Do you know? Uh Yes, uh, Carl. Apparently, this is this was up on Wikipedia. I don't know the source, but uh, oh, but yeah, that guitar the acoustic sounds like Carl. Yeah, it says Carl on guitar, Moog bass, and ribbon controller. Oh yeah, okay. So it'd be a Moog. His finger on the Moog. But uh, uh, yeah, that's probably my favorite Dennis track. So I'm glad you guys. Uh, I'm yeah, and no, you you can get rid of any one of mine that you don't like and put that one in. I, <laughs> that's a that's a great choice. <laughs> What what so, about you? What what else? Well, I uh, you know one song. I have a few that that haven't been mentioned. How about how she boogalooed it? Uh, well, I okay, <laughs> sure. I I love Wild Honey like every track of Wild Honey, and and I love. I think this song gets short shrift because you know, there's so many good songs to talk about and it, it gets kind of buried. So this is a song that uh, the credits are to Mike, Bruce, Al, and Carl and produced by the group. So maybe Mike m more so than the others, I guess, if his name is first. But uh, I think it's a great party track. I, I think it's it's unlike other stuff that they did. I mean, it's in keeping with the Wild Honey uh, mood, but I mean, it, to me, it's almost like a bubblegum R&B rock and roll yeah. song. And it's got a great keyboard solo by Bruce. It's got Carl singing in his like Stevie Wonder Motown voice and it's got charming lyrics like hey there's a stone party dancing with the police don't have to worry about disturbing the peace and it was a number 10 hit in Sweden so how can you beat that <laughs> what well, I remember, I, Craig Craig Slowinski and I had a conversation about the track um, Craig if 
the people listening don't know, is probably the foremost authority on who played what on Beach Boys records since that information is still a bit obscure, like what did they play versus yeah. what did the studio guys play. And uh, he, he occasionally will ask me for a feedback on my opinion on things because he's not a, I don't think he's a musician per se. So there might be technical things. And he was trying to figure out if, because uh, apparently that track was Bruce, Carl, and Brian, surprisingly. Uh, and he was trying to figure out if Brian was playing bass on it or if he, or if he was playing drums. Hmm. And I think we were able to tease out that it wasn't Brian because the, the bass was a, was a, was played with a pick and Brian plays with his thumbs. So if it, it, uh, apparently Brian actually did cut that track and apparently he's the drummer. If I'm remembering that conversation correctly with Craig. Right. Surprisingly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's the first um, non-instrumental that is credited to members of the Beach Boys other than Brian. So I think there's some historical significance to it, too. And I, right. I, I just think I just think it's a lot of fun. I was just surprised that Brian I would have almost expected Brian not even to be on it. Uh, you know, in, in it sounds like a very sort of Al Jardine kind of guitar part. So um, and again, I could be remembering uh, this conversation wrong, but I remember having this discussion with Craig about that track. Phil, well, any other songs you want to mention? Yeah, just real quick. Uh, I think of that uh, 1969 period, uh, Bluebirds, I Can Hear Music, Cottonfields, uh, Singles. Um, uh, maybe oh, Cottonfield, because he didn't write that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, yeah. but the, the remake was an Al Jardine production. The, original the single remake. version of Cottonfields yes. is, yes. is great. Yeah. Uh, that, I didn't even think of that. But that that's a terrific record. Well, wow. arguably, is there any other song that, well, how many songs did uh, any Beach Boys do as a cover, if you will, of a Brian Wilson production? And if there are, are there any that actually, I think, became better? So, I mean, there's a lot of mystery to the Cotton Fields, two words, and Cotton Fields, one word, uh, single and album. So, yeah, but that and that's kind of a lost track in america because it wasn't released on an album here the single didn't do anything here yeah. um i knew about it because when i bought the the sunflower record I, I i was able to get the import that's the only one i could get so i had cotton fields on there but that's oh, cool. that's a ter terrific record great yeah and al jardine deserves a lot of credit for that in fact if you think about it um al produced he was probably the best hit maker for the band for quite a while because he had Cotton Fields, which was a pretty big hit in Europe. Yep. Um, he had Lady Linda, which was a pretty big yes, hit in Europe. Right. And, they, they love him in England. Yeah, and uh, also um, uh, Come Go With Me, yep. which is mostly Al, and that was a fairly large hit in the States at a point. That was out of nowhere because that was off a compilation, and they were they were dead in the water pretty much. And I think, wasn't it? What about Peggy Sue? Is that at the same time? Yeah, that was sort of a mid-chart thing. Went but, to number fifty-seven, I think. Yeah, yeah, but even so, it was it, it did better than uh, anything else that they were doing at the time. And I'll be quick on these. I can hear music. I mean, that's just a. We have to sound. mention that one. Yeah, I kind of steered away from the cover versions, so that's why I didn't put that on. But that okay. that's a that's a great one. Again, another acoustic guitar-based track. So, you know, it has such an airiness to it. Um, 
that you don't get on a lot of their records. I just love that acoustic guitar sound with the Beach Boys sound. It's just great. I mean, what a what a powerful cover that is. This is a song written by Jeff Barry, Ellie Greenwich, and Phil Spector for the Ronettes in 1966. Only made it to, to number 100 on the chart. So Carl is credited with this production. So good on him for recognizing the potential and, and for producing such a powerful track, very much in the Brian vein. I mean, even though the Beach Boys were out of favor at this time, the song went to number 24 in the U.S. because it's, it's undeniable. Uh, his vocal on that song you could argue that's the best vocal he ever did. It's a soaring, powerful yeah. vocal. Like nobody can capture that vocal like Carl can. Uh, yeah. And maybe I'm going to start a conspiracy theory here, but I mean, on a lot of these songs, we don't know if Brian was truly not involved. Now, when this first came out on CD, the Friends 2022 for a 1990, it had liner notes penned by Brian. Uh, for both albums. And this is what Brian says in reference to this song. He says, on I Can Hear Music, I wanted the instrumental track to be smooth and subliminal. I used acoustic guitars. Yeah. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's Brian. He's confused. In my conversations with Brian, he is remarkably clear on what he did. Like, he could tell you what he did or didn't do on a Honey's record in 1963. So if he's saying it, I wouldn't discount it. So perhaps... Yeah. Brian was involved on this track, and he just let Carl, who was sort of stepping up at that time, take the credit. I don't know. I think more needs to be uh, looked into. Maybe there's session tapes that reveal that, but I I'm not privy to them. Well, Bruce, Bruce, I think in the uh, Stars and Stripes uh, somewhere, when they were redoing that song, Bruce made reference to not being able to get Brian to sing on it. And I, I know from Craig that apparently – the drum track is Carl and possibly Dennis sort of playing in tandem. In fact, I think there's studio footage of them doing that somewhere I've seen, but, um, and Brian wouldn't have played the acoustic guitars, uh, but whether he was in the booth or something, I don't, you know, I couldn't speak to that. I don't know. That's just supposedly the first song he didn't participate in, but you may be right. I, I know, I know the uh, quote you're talking about, and that raised an eyebrow for me when it came out. It's About Time, uh, written mm. by Dennis Bob Birchman, uh, and then Al contributed a section. So, first of all, I'd like to point people to a great article about the creation of the song, which hasn't been widely known until recently. Uh, it was written by J.P. Robinson at Medium.com. It uh, surfaced three years ago. So basically, Bob Birchman was a hippie poet at that time, and the Beach Boys had submitted uh, an early version of the Sunflower album to uh, Warner, and it was rejected, not deemed hip enough. So Dennis had this uh, fantastic instrumental track with congas and guitar and bass and looping drums, um, and he hooked up with this guy, Bob Birchman, who was a friend of his, his wife, Barbara's, and uh, played him the track, and, and Bob Birchman liked it, and he came up with these, these lyrics that were very much of the time, uh, combining some kind of you know, Eastern spirituality with kind of um, hippie uh, philosophy, I guess, and uh, came up with a song, and then apparently you know, later on the Beach Boys worked on it in the studio and, and Al uh, added some writing to it. Uh, and this this is a song that really rocks. And, and you have Stephen Desper as engineer, like, you know, creating a great soundscape. Um, and it's I kind of it's forgotten. Dennis now. Dragon on drums, isn't it? Is it, it isn't it that, Dennis Dragon playing the ending there? That could be. That could be. Later of the surf punks? 
Yeah, he was doing yeah. he was doing stuff with the band at that time. Yeah. Um and and this was their concert closer uh for years in the 70s. They would play this uh and it would just like bring the house down. Uh, yeah. If people if people think the Beach Boys can't rock, here's a song you can you can always play for them. So uh, to me that's uh, that's high on my list. Mm, that's a that's a good one. Yeah. And it's interesting how the, the out of out of step with the times the band were and yet Dennis at least was right in the center of everything that was going on in, in, in reflecting in, in what he was writing about. He loved the doors. That was like a big influence on him. And we mentioned slip on through earlier. I mean, what, what a fantastic uh, song and the beach boys had hopes for it. It was an a side single. It leads off sunflower. Uh, you know, it's got the slinky percussion and, and horns and, and maybe Dennis's best vocal ever. Like it's amazing yeah. how, how high yeah, he yeah. goes in that. Uh, and just unfortunately did not set the world on fire. And uh, Dennis never got an a side again, but uh, that's another one I would put on my list. And, and why not forever? If you think about it, um, it, it, because that's such a, you know, it, it's it's maybe one year too early to be a James Taylor tune, but uh, I, to me, where forever kind of falls apart, and I think maybe the reason why it wasn't used is that bridge is so chaotic, you know, because you got every, it's really cool. I'm not saying it's bad, but in terms of something that's going to go out on the radio, you got all these different voices just coming at you. And it is very, in, um, they don't really cohere the vocals there. There's this, there's this part, there's that part. And I think that might've been why it wasn't a single because the, because the bridge is just so esoteric at that point. They put it on the B side. The A side was cool, cool water. But I, I certainly <sighs> think I certainly think that forever would have been a better choice as an A side in terms of a radio song. Uh, cool, cool water is just so weird, you know, especially in this condensed edit that they did for for the the single release. Couple uh, quick quick answer questions. Uh, you are so beautiful. Would that have counted if it could be proved that uh, Dennis actually wrote it? I thought of that. Adam, what do you think? Well, I, I wouldn't have used it, uh, but only because I'm really prejudiced against songs I'm sick of. It's not an objective criteria. Um, it, it that whole story is just so bizarre. You know, <laughs> well, like, like, like how 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 bad that they need a hit right then? It was was '74 when it came out, right? And like and Dennis just comes to the band one day and and it says, "I'm going to do this song for no reason." You know, because he's doing that song from the get-go. Yeah. But we hear this story from Hinchy or whatever, um, what, 15 years later, 20 years later? It's in the 90s when this came out. Yeah. And how did this play out? Like, Dennis, like, like, like let's assume Dennis is all hippie about it. It's like, yeah, whatever. So he comes to Mike and says, hey, um, well, there's a song that's a hit now. I just want to do it at the end. And right. it's so does, does the band say yes to that? Uh, maybe, but if he's if if he if he says to them, "Hey, uh, actually, I kind of wrote this song with with Billy," wouldn't the band have wanted to sort of trumpet that? You know, I, I almost feel like Dennis must have not told the band if this story is true. Um, he must have not told the band he had a hand in writing it, and yet he was able to prevail upon the band to let him sing it at a time when their set lists were tightening up a bit. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was just presented as um, here's a song that 
is a hit right now. Let's do it. I don't. You, you see well, what I'm saying? The well, I, wa- I wondered extreme. why he wanted to do it in the first place before I knew any of the story. I mean, why doesn't he do forever? Why doesn't he do one of his own great right. songs? You know. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that speaks to a a particular attachment he he had to that song. And I just like to mention that when you think about it, you, you talk about how hit starved they were at this time. Two Beach Boys had a hand in two of the the biggest cheesy ballads of the decade. We've got You Are So Beautiful and I Write the Songs. Yeah. Yet neither one is released under the Beach Boys banner. Uh, before we go, I think one song that we have to mention is Kokomo. Uh, <laughs> because the, love it or hate it, Kokomo is definitely the biggest success that the Beach Boys ever had without uh, Brian Brian's participation uh, in any way. So, I mean, this was a song that uh, was written by John Phillips and Scott McKenzie for an attempted kind of Mamas and the Papas reboot that John Phillips was trying to do. And the song he wrote was, you know, quite different from from what we ended up getting. I mean, Mike Love and Terry Melcher got a hold of it, made it made the sort of forlorn ballad, uh, an upbeat song and uh, put like a lot of hooks in it and then, you know, kept repeating those hooks a million times. So yeah, you had to be addicted to it, whether you liked it or not. And uh you know, song went to number one, much much to everybody's surprise. So, uh, you know, k- kudos to the guys for for being able to do that. And uh, you know, I remember I asked Brian once about it because as he was about to embark on that uh, reunion tour and he would have to be singing the song, I asked him what he thought of it. And he goes, "Oh, love Kokomo, love that song." Like he, it was a very <laughs> practiced response. You know, like, <laughs> you think underneath it, I mean, there's a lot of bitterness because he wasn't on this number one song but i mean uh, according to mike you know who talked to me about it um you know eugene landy uh, wanted all kinds of control if brian yeah. was going to participate and uh, terry melcher and mike love uh, weren't going to cede any control to eugene landy so brian didn't appear on it so that, that's kind of a sad uh, part yeah. of the boy story but certainly a fascinating one but he's on he's on brian's on the spanish version and he's not very good on it and <laughs> and, and i i hate to say this but you could argue that with his voice way it was at that time, it might have uh, hampered their commercial success because, you know, it, in the eighties, things were very, very, very about the production. Uh, you, you, there was, and I remember, cause I was in LA at the time I had just gotten here and kind of starting to understand the industry and things like that. Um, when Brian's uh, solo album came out among industry professional types, I'm not talking about, rock critics and, um, you know, musicians, but people that were like, that had hit record ears, the people that were thinking about the industry, the musicians, the producers, and stuff like that, they were appalled because of the, the vocal performances on that record. Because in the context of that time, uh, with, with what was expected to be out on a record, the things that were important uh, then, in 1988, uh, those vocals just weren't cutting it. You know, in Love and Mercy, you get that big swarm of vocals and that sort of random sounding drums. There's actually an off-time drum hit at the end or something that sounds like an off-time drum hit. And it was it's no surprise to me that it didn't get any airplay at that time. And so Kokomo, uh, you know, the, the one thing about that track that I cannot stand is the, the drum sound, the snare. I, I can't believe it got by because it just sounds like someone's hitting a cardboard box. Right. Um, but you know the the I might have put this on the list had I thought of it, although Brian's an uncredited producer on it, so maybe it doesn't count. But the 180s record from the Beach Boys I think is 
awesome is Rock and Roll to the Rescue. Right. And that's a Mike Love, Terry Melcher special. But unlike every other A-side of the time, Brian's singing lead, and he sounds great. He sounds very excited, very animated, and that weird little shouty thing he's got kind of works on the track. In fact, it sort of drives the track because everything else on it's very complicated and busy. And uh, But I've always thought, you know, of all the Mike and Terry Melcher things, that's a really delightful record. And imagine if that had been the hit and not Kokomo, how much more interesting yes. the Beach Boys music might have been after that. You know, okay, well, that's the formula. Okay, the Rock and Roll, the Rescue formula, let's do that. And that, that would have been, a, you know, it, it could have gone any number of ways had Kokomo not been the hit, you know. Well, Brian has been saying for years and years and years he wants to do a rock and roll album, so that could have kicked it off. Yeah, well, well, yeah, well who knows? Brian may outlive us all by 50 years and do it then. <laughs> well, he's, that guy's got a constitution of an ox, I swear to God. God yeah. bless him. Yeah, God bless him. God bless him. God bless us one and all. Adam, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Uh, your insights as a musician and a fan are always appreciated. It's been a really uh, eye-opening conversation. Uh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, both of you. I also want to thank you. Uh, this is the fun kind of conversations that uh, we do these podcasts for, and you've opened our eyes to a lot of things. Thank you very much. Thank you. Likewise, thank you. Drop by again, and we'll do it again. Bye, everybody. <laughs>